Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, the show where we learn about the people who make up the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching Media People Podcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. Have you ever wanted to work abroad? Pack a suitcase and dive into a new job in a new location? Well, today's guest, Joni Joyner, has done just that. Not once, but multiple times. Originally from Scotland, Joni ventured south to London where she started her career as a marketing assistant for Boozy and Hawks, one of the largest publishers of classical music in the world. From there, she moved into the ad operations and ad tech world, holding roles in London, Kansas City, and Australia at companies like Ad Knowledge, AOL, British Sky Broadcasting, Adconian, and Singtel, to name a few. She's landed in Canada, where she currently serves as Managing Director of Ad Gear's Toronto office. Joni, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Victor. I sense a bit of an accent there. Am I correct <laughs> with that? Yes, you are. Um, I am originally from Scotland, a town called Perth. What part of Scotland is Perth in? Because I know a lot of people would be familiar with Edinburgh, Glasgow, which is more in the south, but where's Perth in relation to that? Perth is about 40 miles uh, northeast, so north um, east of Edinburgh. So, so like on, on the, the east north side. Sea? Yeah. Just right on the coast there. Exactly. And what was life like growing up in Perth? Small town-ish, um, you know, very community-driven. Um, it's got a big college. Um, I was very much involved in music uh, as a child. And, uh, you know, we so I spent a lot of time in the local brass band. Brass banding's very big over in the UK and oh, in Scotland. So what was your instrument then? Ah, I played, um, well, uh, as a youngster, I played uh, trumpet and cornet. So I was in the, the local orchestras and, and local brass bands. Um, and actually still do play even today. So when you're playing trumpet though, can't that transfer over to others? Like you probably could, yes. you could fake the tuba and baritone if you had to as well. Absolutely. So usually I could, uh, play pretty much any brass instrument apart from trombone where you've got the slide as mm. opposed to the valves. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Okay. And you parlayed that into, uh, uh, an education at Stowe college in Glasgow. Tell us a bit about, uh, your program. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, you know, growing up in, in Perth and, and, you know, being involved in all the, the, the community and musical, uh, I guess, um, uh, opportunities there. That was a passion. Um, I took that forward uh, and took on a course, uh, an advanced diploma in music industry management at uh, a place called Stowe College, which is not very, uh, you know, famous in any way. Um, but what they are uh, renowned for is their music business courses. What does that entail? Because obviously business courses are part of it, but how do they factor music into the education to kind it's of a, diversify? That's a great question. They actually allow all the students on the course to run a uh, record label called Electric Honey Records. And that record That's label. That's an awesome name, by the way. It is. It's cool. And and look, that record label has gotten quite a lot of um, publicity over the years because it's actually it's part of the course. The the students of 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 each uh, initial first year have to select in Glasgow a um, candidate that they're going to to sign up onto the record label and they produce uh, we produce an EP which is like about four or five songs that that um, act would uh, you know kind of uh, record and so over the years um, we've had people like Snow Patrol and, and Biffy Clyro come out of oh, geez. come out of that record label which has just been that student record label driven from Stowe College but it's somewhat you know obviously got in these acts signed up to larger record labels and done exceptionally well in the UK and overseas. Being able to play an instrument 
management, was that a help in the program or was that something you didn't really need to know? It really did root itself in more production and promotion. It was very much driven around the music business. So if you typically think at the time when I was at college, 2001 through to 2003, that was when pop stars, which was the initial, you could say the, the before... Uh, before X Factor, before Pop Idol, there was gotcha. a show by 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 um, uh, you know kind of various uh, music industry people that that did this pop stars uh, show, and so music business was making a bit of a, a thing where it was becoming quite a sought after after industry to to get into. Now, myself being a musician. What do you do when you when you're faced with uh, selecting a career? You go, well, I could be a, a musician, but you know, what's the likelihood of becoming a, a famous trumpet player in, in the BBC Symphony when you've got three positions as a trumpet player, or you know, set up to have a life as a teacher? And I chose to to actually get into the business side and learn about business and how I could potentially get involved in either product uh, marketing or product management or any form of. Uh, music-related uh, business function. You were there also at an interesting time because you said 2001 to 2003, right? Mm -hmm. This was a time when the iPod was coming out. There was more of a premium on That's MP3s. Right. And it, it, it seemed to be... We I guess we could kind of say that CDs realized that they were sort of meeting their maker per se. Did that factor into the education at all? Or were you still on the edge of that where people bought CDs and things like that? Look... The, the music industry had a hard time letting go of the, the traditional elements, right? You know, buying print music, buying CDs, but it was a big part and, uh, you know, various uh, elements of the course were factored in and around digital, which kind of leads me on to, you know, some of the, the interests that I had around digital and then digital marketing and kind of uh, the, the natural evolution that I took in the future years, uh, stepping away from music and into that, that function. And then after graduation, where did you land? So after graduation, so, you know, just before I graduated in 2003, I worked for a very small record label in Edinburgh called The Music Kitchen. And it was run by actually one of my college lecturers, um, uh, a guy called Gordon. Um, and um, he was uh, renowned for writing various different songs for the likes of Shaken Stevens and Elton John and had made some money on that. The other guy that run the company was... Um, uh, one of the, 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 the Bay City Rollers, believe it or not, uh, guitarists, uh, Stuart Wood, uh, or otherwise known as Woody. And I worked as their assistant for about nine months before I went down to London, purely for work experience. Um, I worked for very little money. It didn't matter. It was all about experience. And in that time, I did everything from making them cups of tea to getting on the phone to radio stations. And a lot of the, the functions of my role was just being a, a kind of marketing assistant a little bit, um, helping them prepare uh, all of the various uh, paperwork to produce a CD. Um, but it was fantastic, um, you know, liaising with these two kind of industry veterans in Scotland um, and here hearing about their experiences and that's what kind of got me planning my uh, kind of uh, plans to get down to London which was uh, in kind of mid-2003. So what happened when you went south and landed in London? Yeah so I took up a job um, at a very famous uh, renowned classical music publishing company called Boozy and Hawks. Uh, anybody that's ever played a, a brass instrument or a woodman instrument will be very familiar with this company. They used to manufacture woodwind and brass instruments and um, the most renowned for obviously their, their publishing of, of various classical works and uh, educational uh, music books. And um, I started off as a marketing assistant right at the bottom. Um, it was a varied job because it was obviously very offline driven, but with the, as you said, that the, the 
that kind of time in 2003 where digital was becoming more and more prevalent, um, one of the things that, that I found myself gravitating towards was, you know, kind of the website and the marketing aspects of how we promote ourselves and, and what we ha- were doing uh, digitally, you know. How did that work? Because I played piano for a while growing up and I'm familiar with Boozy Hawks, but it was more or less the usually the music I had to buy was dictated by the music teacher. So were you doing a lot of marketing to music teachers then and not necessarily musicians? That's exactly right. I mean, you have your kind of consumer end, which is, you know, through your various retailers. And a lot of the time, like Boozy and Hack Hawks had their, uh, you know, their, their 295 Regent Street office and their shop, their very famous shop downstairs. Um, but most of the time we're liaising with uh, music teachers, with schools, but with also uh, various um music stores across the country and not just the UK, I mean, internationally. So really kind of, uh, the retailers themselves, um, and then online, you know, and kind of getting out there with producing, uh, you know, kind of the, the retail, uh, experience online. And then also further down the line, the, the digital experience and people, you know, are now buying music to download onto their tablet and many musicians sit there, it, with the, within the, you know looking at their music stand with their tablet on their music stand and not a not a sheet of paper. I've got an idea. We should invent an <laughs> app where no 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 this is a good one where it downloads the music but it's also listening to you play and it knows when you hit the certain note to turn the page on. <laughs> that, that sounds fantastic. There we go. We're going to put that out and then we're going to retire early. But after Boozy Hawks, uh, you pivoted a little bit with your career. I did. Where yes. did you end up after that? Well, look, I had two years at Boozy and Hawks and it's kind of that first proper job and, you know, you're getting your career sorted and you're figuring out what you're going to do and, and you know, what, what's, what does the future hold? And as I said, as part of taking on that role in a, as a marketing assistant, getting more and more into digital was becoming a, a, a passion. And what happened was purely through incidents of, you know, starting to look around after two years, seeing what's out there, what other jobs I could potentially do in the music industry. The challenge you have in the music industry is finding opportunity to grow. And I think I've always been very, uh, very keen to, to grow and evolve and, and keep climbing the ladder and keep, you know, learning and acquiring new skills. And what I noticed is that, you know, the, the music industry lagged there. A lot of people would sit tight in jobs for long time because the, 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 the jobs are, are not really out there and fruitful. But on digital, that was where there was, there was just this uh, hustle and bustle and, uh, like, you know, kind of opportunities emerging from all sorts of places and I you know when I started to look into digital different digital opportunities initially I started looking at radio stations and the fact that radio and and you know kind of you've got like radio advertising but then you've got the whole digital piece and so what happened is um I purely applied for a job at um British Sky Broadcasting like TV sta- uh, stations um, for different roles. And, and one of the roles that came up was ad operations and trafficking. And I, I, at the time, I remember the recruitment agency saying to me, oh, they're, you know, traffickers, ad ops people, they're like gold dust. It'd be a great sidestep for you to take, you know, from, from marketing and, and what you've been doing in music. And I said, I've never heard of it. What did they do? Oh, well, they place ads on, on websites. And I thought, well, it sounds interesting. You're getting involved in websites and, and you know, more understanding, uh, you know, digital web, web development. So, so that was it, really. It was a case of, um, you, know, um, you know, interviewing and, and, and getting my first role in ad ops. You know, and that's how it started, really. What was the attitude like there at a big broadcaster towards digital? And I asked that because I've had a role, too, where I worked in digital at a broadcaster. And you had some people that looked at you like, 
this internet's not going to catch on. You'll always stay in the corner and now it's kind of reversed. Was it like that at uh, Sky as well? You know what? So Sky was 2005 for me. Uh, you know, a little bit. We were somewhat, the digital team was somewhat a little team of, I think maybe at most 15 people, which included sales. And there was two ad ops and I was the assistant and there was the manager there. So it was a very small, it was like the nice to have team. It was the add on. It was the team that were, you know, uh, making great money, but it was like the over the top because obviously the real deal was TV ads and TV content. And it was so fascinating to see the transition um, of that taking place, not just at Sky, but just in my my future uh, positions beyond Sky, is that became more and more not just the add-on, but then the main the main thing that, that that kind of powered the business and brought in the revenues and the profit. It is the heartbeat. I know sales likes to say they run the show, but that's not the case. One can't survive without the other. So it's uh, it's like a, a right leg and a left leg. But how many times do reps run to ad ops and go, I sold something. I don't know if we can make it happen. Please make it happen. If I, you know, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said that to me, I'd be very <laughs> rich, I tell you. <laughs> be, be a nice way to structure a bonusing for ad ops, that's know, right? for sure. <laughs> And then after that, you moved on to uh, Ad Knowledge. What brought you there? Yeah, yeah. So um, went over to Ad Knowledge. Let me tell you a bit of a story about this. It wasn't Ad Knowledge when I uh, joined the team. It was actually called Media Run. And Media Run was a very small ad network um, just based in, in London. We were, I think when I joined, maybe around 12 people. Um, I was joining the ad ops team. Again, it was myself and another person. We were uh, very small. And then over that kind of period, I was there a couple of years, we grew to about 30 people. We had so much success. I mean, we were an ad network in the sense of your traditional ad network. So we did some site representation on a number of known brands, um, known websites. But then we also had like a blind network where we kind of predominantly, you know, bought a lot of different, uh, you know, ad impressions from various, uh, you know, UGC sites like, uh, you know, MySpace or Bebo, uh, you know, kind of pre-Facebook. This oh, is before God. Facebook was kind of like Bebo. big. Yeah. I'm familiar with Bebo. Um, and I actually remember doing a lot of uh, inventory purchases on, on Facebook inventory when they had those banner ads, you know, when they had the t- traditional display. And, I, I, you know, it's uh, it was quite interesting dealing with Facebook because for them it was like, hey, this over-the-top, like, added value thing of, you know, bringing in ad revenues. It was... Uh, you know, and, and, um, yeah, it was very interesting. And you know what, like, so we were, we were doing really well. We were running great successes. We, we signed a a 1 million pound annual deal with O2. I remember celebrating that quite profusely in, in, uh, in a nightclub called Bougies with, um, with the management team. Um, and, and come kind of 2007, um, the business got to a point where we were like, look, we're an ad network. We don't have our own technologies. We're working with a lot of third-party technologies. But what we need to start doing is looking for uh, an opportunity to be acquired. And um, I was quite involved with um, the managing director of the, the office, a guy called John Cole, who, who I've known for a long time and, and, and um, still regularly catch up with him now. And um, we, we, we met with a whole bunch of people and we met with Ad Knowledge in Kansas City and um, we presented our, our, our products and our business offering and our, our, our requirements uh, in terms of what we would like to do and in terms of uh, partnering with somebody and being acquired. And you know what? It seemed to be the right place at the right time for Ad Knowledge. They were looking at getting into the UK market and um, 
it kind of just the, the the everything aligned and we were we were bought out you know kind of 2007 around october time i think and um i assumed a role at admiralage i want to ask you did, did that make you nervous though because i've been part of uh, a company that was acquired and immediately you think oh god when am i going to get my pink slip you know the weird thing at the time is i just felt like we were just going on this really big adventure of just figuring out how we were going to take the next step in, in, in the business. When I look back, I think, wow, you know, we sat in all these meetings and we pitched the business and, you know, that's, that's a, that's a big thing. But I think I saw the opportunity that ad knowledge could bring to the table and I was really excited. And you're right. There was people in the business that weren't as close to what we were doing and um, back home in London that were a bit apprehensive when the news was announced. And that's just normal. Um, but for me personally, it was, I just saw immense opportunity and I was really impressed with what, what we saw with ad knowledge and what they had built so far. I mean, they had a very strong and still do today, a very strong uh, engineering and, and technology platform. You're right about that, about opportunity. I mean, you said you were 24 at the time. To be 24 and in the US shopping your company around, not many people can say they've done that, even in no. their 30s or 40s for that matter. True. And it wasn't even my company. <laughs> <laughs> But there was a bit of relocation after that happened. You landed in Kansas City yourself. I did for a bit, yes. Yeah. So what happened is with the acquisition taking place, I assumed a role as product manager for the display side. And what that meant was essentially looking at how we build our own display ad server. Um, so we had, again, been using some third-party ad serving technology. We had our own proprietary uh, technology in place at AdKnowledge already around uh, bid management. And we had the, the, the ad station in place. And so we had various components and that were somewhat in place and, and, and what Scott Lynn, uh, who was you know CEO at the time, had sort of said, it's like, great, come out to Kansas City, spend some time. Here's a team of, of developers. I want a first, uh, I want a version one ad server in 90 days. And I thought to myself, Shit, 90 days? So, you know, again, looking at a, an MVP and looking at what we had already in place, we were able to deliver something and, and kind of uh, make the migration over in, a, in, in kind of that 90-day period. And, and that, what that meant was me spending quite a bit of time in Kansas City for, for several months working uh, directly with the engineers to, to build that out. Tell us about, though, your time. Like, when you were in Kansas City, was it a bit of a culture shock to you, apart from them driving yes. on the, the other side of the road? Did you have to change your management style, anything like that, the way you approached or dealt with people? Because sometimes, I mean, a lot of the the British or Scottish humor doesn't travel very well on this side of the uh, the Atlantic. That's so true. Uh, you know, that's such a really good point. Yes, the, the answer is absolutely. I mean, you know, um, there was things that... I was learning as I was kind of, you know, I'd spent a bit of time being uh, a kind of manager to a couple of people previously with the media run business, but nothing to the extent of what I was doing now. And this was kind of, I would say, my first proper product management role. Um, and so, you know, dealing with engineers as well is very different from dealing with adults people or, or, or you know, other, other functions. And so, you know, it was very much a case of, you know, figuring things out. And, and, and sometimes, you know, you were coming across, you know, in a way in which, you know, doesn't necessarily go down that well. It might go down like a lead balloon. And that did happen on occasions because particularly as, as I assumed this role, I was involved in the management meetings. And so I was kind of learning at a fairly young age, you know, 
how to conduct yourself and what's the right information to be sharing in a management meeting as opposed to what you you wouldn't share at that sort of level. So for me, it was very much a, a drop in, in the ocean and, and, and a sink or swim. Um, but, but personally, when you're looking for that sort of development, uh, and, and that's always what I've sought out, um, it's, it's invigorating and, 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 and really exciting to be a part of. You get it wrong sometimes, but that's only how you learn. Great philosophy. <laughs> I've gotten stuff wrong a lot, so I'd like to say I've learned, I've learned my share uh, over the time. Uh, but then you landed at AOL. Tell us about your time there. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess I was, I, you know, headed off into AOL and, and kind of partly because, you know, my role at, at AdKnowledge became more and more a need to be permanently based in, in the Midwest of America. And, um, you know, I, I kind of decided that that wasn't the right uh, thing for me to do at that time in my life uh, to move out to Kansas City and 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 to assume that role and so we we parted on great terms and then here I end up um, moving into 2008 uh, AOL um, and that was during the platform a days I don't know if you remember if platform a was was big in North America but it was a big thing in Europe that was launched essentially what it was was AOL buying up all of those various ad tech players, whether it's Quigo or Dakota or Lightning Cast, you know, or ad tech, and starting to build, I, I guess, somewhat what they have today, which is a, a full stack technology platform. So really shifting away from being that ISP or that kind of portal and into more the tech side. So it was the very beginning of it all. To me, it was uh, a massive opportunity. It was uh, a role that was a European role. So I took uh, a European product management role and I was, was responsible initially for all of the um, targeting ad targeting products, which which was mainly behavioural targeting because that was the big thing. So it was rolling out a behavioural targeting offering across UK, France and Germany. It was looking at demographic targeting and, and rolling that out across the different territories. It was looking at other types of, of targeting opportunities. It could be predictive targeting and retargeting, all of that sort of stuff. And it was very new. This was a, an educational an educational role as well because you're out there in, in agency meetings doing the education piece you're also having to spend a lot of time educating sales at the same time you're figuring out yourself what's the best approach to setting this up I and mean, we we used a great partner at the time called Wonderloop who have now been acquired by by audience science they were a german-based uh, ad tech firm fantastic guys and um, yeah, like, you know, we were figuring out what, you know, segment building and data collection and, you know, um, and, and, you know, basically firming out what our product is. I mean, the, the, the most exciting thing at the time was the fact that we were commanding 50, 60 pound CPMs, which is insane. Really. That is insane. <laughs> so when you landed at AOL, you mentioned it was a European product. I, I assume you went back to Europe as well? After, after obviously the, the stint to add knowledge, I was firmly back in the in the land of, of the UK, and uh, was based out of their London uh, office. After spending a bit of time in this European role and doing not just the targeting side, but I also got involved in other aspects such as uh, video and uh, rolling out uh, a kind of pay-per-click self-service platform, somewhat uh, contending with uh, and attacking the Google AdSense play. Um, you know, I, I went out uh, 
you know, on a, on a, on a redundancy uh, early 2010. Um, with many others, as, as they obviously prepared to, to look at closing down some of the European offices and, and scaling right back. And that was kind of with Tim Armstrong coming in six months previous, who again, fantastic leader and was doing all of the right things. How did you end up in Australia, though? <laughs> I know. You've worked in, what, three different continents now, we can yes, say? Yes, it is. Yes, this is the third continent I'm now in. So, yeah, so I guess, you know, on a personal level, we talk so much about, you know, the professional side and the jobs and the stories behind it. But, you know, obviously you've got what you want to do personally. And I think I was always trying to find the right time to spend a bit of time taking a sabbatical. Eight years in London, I'll be honest with you, I was kind of exhausted. And um, I wanted to go off and do a bit of travelling. And, and purely Australia, that's, that, that was the reason for going to Australia, as many of us Brits Brits do. A lot of Canadians uh, we, we do that as well. We pack a bag and we get our uh, working holiday visa if, we, if you're under the age of 31, and I was at the time, and um, we, we, we head off. And I, I landed in Sydney um, with, my, my, uh, with my partner, now husband, and um, we took some time out. We, had, you know, we, we didn't work initially. We figured out what we were going to do, and, and from there on in, it became more of, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll take on a role and I took on a role uh, working at Optus, um, Singtel, which is a, a large telco company and um, you just, you know, you end up just, uh, life goes on and you don't realise how long you've been in a place and four years went when I, when I was in, in Australia before you realise, oh, I've been here four years. If you were to speak to anyone else that really wasn't sure what to do next or if they had been burnt out in their job, would you tell them to just pack a suitcase <laughs> and get out of the continent? <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I mean, I think that's what some people need to do is just get I, out and see I, what else is going on in the world. I think so. Look, it, it, it was the right thing for, for, for me to do. And, you know, obviously when you're in a position financially where, you know, if you've been lucky enough to, to have the funds to do it and take the time off, do it. And I think for me, it was, it was a calling for me most of 2010 where just things weren't quite feeling, uh, like, you know, for me, I just needed to have that break and like do the push the reset button and go, OK, what's the next chapter? You know, like what's the next position going to look like? Is it product? Is it is it ad ops? Is it something different? And that was the reason for taking the role at Singtel, because it was something different. It was a telco. It was a telco doing digital, but it wasn't now doing digital in the sense that I'd been used to, which is display and, and all this other, all these other things around targeting and video and ad serving. This was now launching a product for Optus, attacking um, Google and attacking their main competitor, which is Yellow Pages or Census, um, from the from a digital perspective and rolling out like a search marketing and search engine optimization product for SMBs. So not only have I put myself in a position where I'm in a different continent, I I, I sought out a role that was in a different industry and kind of use my transferable skills and use my digital skills to do something a little different. And that was a role that was, that was kind of a, a contract uh, role for, for about, I think maybe nine months. And um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, launching and it was, it was, you know, launching their, their, their first digital advertising products into the Australian market. So it was pretty, it was pretty exciting. So how did you find your way then to ad gear, not just ad gear, but ad gear in Toronto of all places? That's a great you, question. You're, well, you're pretty good at finding jobs outside of uh, various <laughs> countries. So I've, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this, because I know uh, there are a lot of people in the industry who, uh, especially on the agency side, if they're at a global agency, they can do a transfer and go to uh, a sister agency in, say, London or Sydney or wherever or New York. 
but you just keep finding jobs. You're like, I, I don't need a transfer. I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. Well, my philosophy is if you want something bad enough, you'll get it. I'm very much a believer in the law of attraction. I'm not sure uh, how familiar you are with that, Victor, but um, I very much feel that you can uh, seek out what you need if you if you want it bad enough. It's a good um, philosophy. Part of me, again, professionally was Australia is not our place uh, to settle down. And I think now that I'm getting into a situation where it's, uh, you know, as the years go on, you go, oh, crap, you know, uh, not getting any younger and starting to put roots down. And, and we, we compromised on North America. And that compromise became down to Canada and then Toronto. Um, and that was how we got to it, purely because from a personal perspective, and, you know, we were like, okay, well, you know, we need to live in a place that we're both going to feel happy uh, with. And, and just so you know, my husband's actually not from the UK. He's actually South African. So this is his fourth continent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, you know, we chose North America and it was, again, purely a, profe- a personal choice to go, let's find a place where we're close enough to family in the UK uh, and not feeling that we're so far removed from the rest of you know, the world uh, is as beautiful and amazing as Australia is. It is feeling, it does feel a little bit uh, isolated. So you guys picked the country first and then you went for the job. Yes. Okay. So, you know, basically, you know, great. We've got our eyes set on Toronto. So how are we going to get there? You know, and that was what we did for most of 2014 is, is figuring out how we do, how we do that because, you know, we were too old to get working holiday visas. So, you know, we have to think about alternatives and let me tell you, it's not an easy country to get into my goodness. Um, so how did I meet Adgear? I met Adgear because when I was working at Yellow Pages Australia, which just so you know, is actually referred to as census in Australia random name I know, but you know, it is the Yellow Pages group in Australia. But at the time, Census was looking at shifting away from uh, the third-party ad-serving technology and, and other uh, you know, uh, technologies we were using on the, on the ad side. Um, because in our own right, we were a publisher, right? And we were serving ads across various entities that we owned. And so this was not actually my core role at, at Census, but I was involved purely just from my previous background. And I got involved more as a consultant to help out evaluate different ad tech companies. One of the big things was working with a company that could provide some customization that would provide the service levels and flexibility and that would do something a little bit different for us. We didn't want to go with the same old usual suspects um, and we weren't quite happy with what we get, we got, what we had. Um, so, you know, purely by working uh, with a company in Montreal already called Aquizio and they're a bid management platform, uh, they had suggested Adgear and I said, I've never heard of this company. Who are they? Can you give me an intro? Of course. So um, I get an introduction uh, to Boschko Milikic, who's our CTO. And um, we have a call and, you know, I was very impressed with with what I saw and what I heard and and the conversations were very encouraging. Long story short, we ended up staying with what we got because we had some structural changes at Yellow Pages, the usual thing, you know, company structure changes, everything goes on hold. But nonetheless, I'd made a really good connection um, with Boschko and and Boschko came out to Australia on, on, on more uh, different work and personal reasons to visit and we caught up and had a coffee and um, so yeah, several months later, after connecting with Adgear, I, I purely sent them a note saying, hey, I'm coming to Toronto. I want to meet up with various people. I know you guys are based in Montreal, but do you know anybody in Toronto that may be looking for people like myself? Or do you know anybody you could maybe help with an intro with? Bosch was like, sure, we're looking for somebody in Toronto. 
And I said, what? And right he, call at the right time. <laughs> and I said, oh, you guys have an, an office in Toronto? And he says, yeah, we have a small office in Toronto and we may be looking for somebody like you. Why don't we catch up? And that was it, really. I mean, I was here for a week, uh, November 2014. I met some great people. I was, you know, really encouraged. And that, and that was the thing. For me, it was like, you're not going to get anywhere if you're going to sit in Australia applying for jobs. You know, forget it. you got to get out there. you got to meet people. you got to sell your product, which is you. And, and you've got to make the effort. And you've got to be committed to be, to, 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 committed to it and it's going to take time and it might not take the first visit visit it might take several visits or it might even mean moving back to the uk um to weigh out the fact that we you know we may need to work for a company and do a transfer or whatever so we looked at all options and we were prepared to do all options but you know i was lucky enough where for me it felt like the right place at the right time you know i, I came to montreal i met with Ipoare, um our president and, and co-founder and boshko and uh you know, we, we had a great conversation and, and here I am. <laughs> so you'd say that from a career perspective, you've had your best luck by hustling for positions, not necessarily responding with uh, a CV or a resume the way people do. It's actually going after them and tracking them down. You know what? People connect with people and, you know, people uh, who have worked with people in the past recommend. And, and for me personally, a CV can feel very one dimensional and doesn't really tell the story or illustrate the person's capabilities or the person's passion. Um, I agree. I think that if you really do want something and, and, and something as difficult as this, where you're sitting the other side of the world and there's visa situations to contend with, because bear in mind, that's not something that's a consideration for many Canadian employees, quite rightly. So, you know, there, there's, you know, good opportunity here with and great talent here on on the doorstep and, and even in the U.S. And so, if you're going to actually, uh, you know, do something like this, you've really got to get out there and be in the faces and make the effort to connect and and uh, and um, you know keep keep hustling. I guess, yeah, keep keep selling yourself and believing in yourself that you're that you're kind of good enough. So let's talk about the four uh, different places you've worked. What's the difference between managing a team in London versus Sydney versus Toronto? Great question. There's there's actually really versus big... Kansas City. We cannot forget those guys <laughs> as well. Yeah, look, very different. Um, and I think one of the biggest um, adjustments I'm making, kind of continuing to make um, here, being a newbie to Canada, is you know that cultural adjustment, right? Because that's pretty key, particularly you know as being a leader, to make sure that you're you're in sync and in tune with. Um, you know, the, you know, how people uh, treat each other and how people are dealt with. I mean, you certainly don't want to be any bull in a china shop. So for me, it's a very trade carefully approach. I mean, you know, you got to listen, you got to build trust, you got to build relationships, you've got to, you know, uh, deliver and show um, that you can, you know, that you're, you're somewhat worthy. There's always that, you know, uh, in a new role and in a new country. Um, and, um, yeah, definitely for me, um, there wasn't so much an adjustment I felt between UK and Australia, funnily enough, but a massive adjustment coming here, which is interesting because did I feel that same adjustment from the Midwest? Yeah, I think I did. So, okay. so it's interesting. There's obviously something, uh, you know, there's obviously, um, you know, adjustments there for, you know, how, how business is conducted and how people, uh, prefer to be treated or how people treat other people in North America than in, say, the UK and, and Australia taking probably more of an influence from the UK. Speaking to others, I've 
heard that, uh, who've had the opportunity like yourself to work on both sides of the Atlantic, they say in North America, we're a lot more rushed. Okay. We're going to close with the final question. Thank you so much for everything today. This has been fantastic. It's the same question I close with, uh, with everyone. If you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? It'd be something I, I'd be something to do with music for sure. I would probably be a music teacher sitting somewhere, uh, waving a baton and, uh, you know, being involved in a whole bunch of different community bands and orchestras, because that's what I love doing, uh, outside of work. And it's, it's a big passion. It'd be either that or something to do with dogs, because I also equally love dogs. Do you have a dog? <laughs> What's that? Do you have a dog? I have two. Did I you have, a... have they been around the world with you, or are they Canadian? You know what? My pug has, has flown from, from Melbourne to here. So I have my, my three-year-old pug, Mavis, and uh, but our, our second dog's from Canada. Joni, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Victor. Thanks for listening to today's show. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash Podcast. Or subscribe on iTunes by searching Media People Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Vic Genova.